Blog Talk Radio. We 
welcome you. So right now, that's the order of our lineup. And the way we always get started with our party is to introduce to you today our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We now we bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamakamashoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and my thing is all about institution buildings. You know, uh, Brother Africa, recently I read a book uh, called Africa the Unconscious by Edward Bynum. Very interesting book. It gets at the question in terms of not only the origin in terms of psychology, but also their role in terms of institutions. One of the biggest struggles I have in terms of um, discussion is around institutions. Uh, for whatever reason, people have a very difficult time in terms of understanding, you know, how the institutions in a society, uh, be they church, be they educational systems, be they social political systems, how they impact on a human being. And as a consequence, you know, to give you an example, uh, there is a, a, a formerly a school, uh, actually it's a community. It's a Muslim community in Brooklyn, New York. It was called the Ansarlah community. And those kids, that a result of that community, I mean, they were, it was a self-contained community. And those kids are some of the brightest, the most articulate, some of the, I mean, some, some of the most aware children that you ever could envision. Uh, it it, it speaks directly in terms of the kind of institutions uh, that the Ansarlah community created, you know, to make sure that certain ideas, certain precepts, certain value systems are inculcated in their children. And as a consequence, those kids excel academically. Those kids were very, very respectful. Those kids were very, I mean, very, very pleasant. And so it speaks to the role in terms of institutions. And so one of the things that when we talk about institutions as relate to our children in the communities, one of the things that we've got to understand that our children internalize a lot of these values that permeate society. A lot of these values are not empowering. They tend to tear down the human psychic. So, for instance, if you got a, a little African child talking about, you know, that uh, white skin is preferable or white skin is more intelligent or white skin is better all the way around, then clearly you got a problem, particularly as it impacts on him, him or her self-esteem. So I think that the whole question in terms of institutions has to be paramount in our thinking in terms of trying to change this paradigm that our young children are, 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 are impacted with on a daily basis. Because without that understanding in terms of, you know, how these institutions impact us, then we could continue to abide by these institutions which value systems are across the board in opposition to the interests of our children. So we have to have institutions that empower our children. So I encourage people to give out the business of building those institutions because that's so important to the, the aspirations of our children. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following Brother Haki, now bringing Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Fine, Brother Anthony. We now will bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to you and to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the panelists, esteemed gentlemen. Uh, my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class 
back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author finisher of my faith, and that mouth faith tongue is his messenger for government. And thank you once again, Brother Ephraim, for allowing me to be among these powers. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And following Brother Moses, we're now bringing Brother Jabari. And we'd like to welcome him as well to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Jabari. Peace, everybody. Brother J. Resident Researcher, looking forward to another insightful program. Appreciate the invitation and opportunity. All right, panelists. Um, there were so many things that took place this past week. We'd like for us, we'd like for you to share with us what's going on in your world and the community. We start out with you, Brother Abney. Uh, certainly. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see. Uh, the masses of humanity are, are are on fire all over the world for various sets of reasons, in particular Africa, uh, specifically in the country of Mali. In Mali, there have been demonstrations demanding that the French get out of Mali. And it's become clear that because of the damage that French uh military presence has done that the masses of Africans in Mali want the French to get out. And uh, the Prime Minister of France, uh, Macron, indicated that the French have no intention of leaving, which uh, goes to show that that the only thing uh, the oppressor understands is force. And we have to get Organized in order to force all the uh, imperialists out of Africa. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, Brother Africa, I got to share this very interesting article I read. Uh, it's very, very uh, interesting. It deals with the whole issue in terms of uh, Cleo dynamics. In event, this individual by the name of um, Peter Turchin, who's an evolutionary biologist, he talks about cryodynamics. Um, and cryodynamics is a look at the flow of history to determine dramatic events in it to come. Now, he maintains every 50 years, uh, political violence strikes the U.S. And now he cites the following timetable. In 1870, the Civil War. In 1920, communism movement and racial tension. In 1970, the Vietnam War and civil rights movement. And if history is any true to form, 2020 would be even more explosive, given the class divide, racial hatred, and immigrant hysteria. Now, there are those who believe such uh, predictions are tantamount to pseudoscience. It does, however, underscore the economic reality that does, in fact, threaten humanity. That threat lies squarely with the economic system dedicated to the richness of a few at the expense of all others. Gabor Gopriks, an investor, uh, published, and this is a quote, M2, the amount of dollars in circulation or the rate of people spend money, increased since the financial crisis of 2008 to over $8 trillion. Yet the money created or the spread of the money or the velocity of the money which spreads that goes through the system decreased by 30%. In other words, end of quote, in other words, even though they created all, spend, created all this money out there in the air, when you measure the amount of money in circulation, it actually decreased, which means that the money is disappearing. Now, and despite qualitative easing, uh, depending on the money by the Federal Reserve, the real economy in terms of jobs, wages, rents, mortgages have been negatively affected. 
The question is, why is that so? Well, the, 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 question, the response is that the reason why it's increasing is because money goes directly to the institutions like Wall Street, big banks, military. These monies never reach the real economy, which explains why the homelessness, the unemployment, uh, the lack of quality education, and so forth and so on. Uh, now, it seems to me that when we talk about, you know, just disappearing in terms of money, there's a Ponzi scheme at play here. Uh, and one of the Ponzi schemes that people need to be aware of, the whole role in terms that banks play in terms of this whole Ponzi scheme. Now, banks utilize fractional banking in which a single deposit, for example, makes it possible for banks to make multiple loans. Obviously, if banks use $1,000 deposit to make three loans for $3,000 apiece, that $1,000 deposit will not have the liquidity necessary to cover those loans in the event of a default or, or any of those loans. This is, and this is when the Federal Reserve printing of money comes into play. By printing money out of thin air, the Federal Reserve can show that this Ponzi scheme continues. And what people have to understand in terms of this Ponzi scheme, this is important to get this, but when we talk about you know, additional money being printed, one of the things that understand the role of asset prices. In other words, when we talk about things like stocks, uh, real estate, the wealthy people continue to invest in those, in those instruments. In other words, they pay huge sums of money to acquire those stocks. But what happens is it doesn't stop there. They acquire even more more assets, more stocks, and what means that the prices of those stocks actually increase. Now, here's the problem. It increases to a point in which the banks, keep in mind, we talk about fractional banking, increase this value of those assets to the point in which uh, the banks can't possibly even pay back pay back those pay back those 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 assets. So this is called this is called a asset bubble, and this is why important people got to understand. So when they talk about an asset bubble, understand that it's 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 implicit to to capitalism. And one of the problems in terms of asset bubbles is that not only does it exclude large number of people from actually participating in, in the economy, but inevitably it leads to you know, its own destruction. And now ultimately, when we talk about this asset bubble, it ultimately it spreads throughout the world's economy. Now, all right, now, the banks, now, interestingly enough, though, when we, when we talk about these assets, you know, these, these, these assets, the thing that's interesting is that even though uh, there is a real threat to the economy, the banks, when you look at the bank's balance sheets, it reflects the economic growth. The reality is there is no economic growth. As I stated, the economic growth is only on paper. It doesn't really exist. It only exists on paper. It's all a house of cards. So the, the question we have to ask ourselves is when does house of cards fall in a wheel and the, cap, the capitalists understand that, someone must be blamed. Now, the question is, will it be the feds who take the blame? Probably not. Will it be the bankers? No. The history is very clear on this point. The people who will be blamed for the downfall of the economy is going to be the poor, minorities, individuals unrelated to legalized criminality will bear the blame. Now, I want people to be very, very clear when I, when I talk about the role in terms of these, these, these assets. One of the things that we have to understand that when we talk about the U.S. US debt currently at $27 trillion, we've got to understand one thing. This debt cannot be repaid. Now, even though officially they say that debt, the U.S. national debt is $27 trillion, but actually when you in, include um, M1, which is the checking, uh, all the checks that are outstanding, or we leave involved M3, use M3, include M3 in terms of institutional investments like money market funds, repo, hedge funds, and things like that, when you include those monies, then you talk about close to $60 trillion in debt. The bottom line is that they can't, they can't pay that back. 
And proof positive is that when, when you look at terms of the kind of war and the devastation the U.S. and the West is imposing upon the world, it's a clear indication they understand that the gig is up, that capitalism can't survive. And this is why you have all these wars. Now, keep in mind, these wars are fought externally, but we have to understand that in, 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 implicitly we understand that the war is going to come here because, in other words, uh, it has to come here because you, you, there's a recent poll that was, that, was, that was done and which stated that the fact that 70% of the people in America disapprove of capitalism. Well, that 70% of the people become an ex- existential threat to the powers that be, and so therefore they too must be perceived as the enemy or to be attacked. And so, therefore, we've got to understand that, you know, uh, the real danger in terms of you know, confronting humanity is not in terms of racial antagonisms that exist, or even class antagonism, but fundamentally the economic system, which is in decline, in order for the rich to maintain their dominance, they got to destroy and plunder at all costs. And this includes the, the, local, the national popul- local population. Now, class dynamics may not be a bona fide sign, but... Its anticipation of large-scale upheaval and violence and terror is correct. And this is all because of financial manipulation, a system which is geared toward the empowerment or the benefits of a very small pop number of people. we got to understand that when we talk about this war being exacted against the population in America, that understand that the police are only the front line, that is much bigger than the police. And so, therefore, we got some very serious problems coming at us. And if we don't understand that fundamental reality, then we're going to be caught off guard. Uh, you know when things are hit. So I encourage people, you know, to as, as you know to 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 read the Wall Street Journal, to read the Berman Report, and to do a little research to find out exactly what they're talking about when they use these these so-called economic terms. So in saying that, Brother Africa, I'll close. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we have Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, it's been an interesting week. Uh, Certainly, we want to mention that uh, Congress, you know, laid out their case in the Senate, and I was very convinced of uh, this con man's game is being exposed. Uh, Whether the Republicans can can stay in denial forever, I don't know, but uh, it's hard to believe anybody can be in denial that much. Then there was demonstrations yesterday, the 25th, uh, over around the world, around on U.S. hands off of Iran. Uh, and I would like to mention that um, Kobe Bryant passed, was killed today of a helicopter accident. And he was definitely a great uh, NBA player. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world and the community? Recently, there was a press conference held in Richmond, Virginia. And the press conference was held in regards to certain members of Richmond's black clergy community publicly announcing their support for a major redevelopment project that the Richmond City Council is going to be voting on soon entitled Navy Hill. Now, the thing that's very interesting is that Navy Hill's key financier is Dominion Virginia Power. And if you know anything about utilities in Virginia, that's the main utility. And Dominion Virginia Power has a very interesting um, approach to doing business because this is an entity that, as it was reported, that they made $300 million in profit when 
um, there were numerous critics that questioned why they had to make so much in profit. They tried to justify it by saying that they needed that much money to help fund initiatives for cleaner energy that um, they said that they're going to work on. And the other thing you have to bring into the equation, too, with the so-called Navy Hill is that this is not a new um, name for a neighborhood. There was once a very prominent black community in Richmond called Navy Hill as a historical marker would indicate. So it's very interesting that those who um, are antithesis to the black people who make up just barely now, make up the majority of Richmond, will want to take what has historically been established as a black community and create a development to benefit themselves and take the name that was already established. Okay. I thank you, Jabari. Uh, we'd like to thank our panelists for sharing our perspective on what's going on in that world and the community. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls and we'll come back. We're going to discuss some of the issues that were just articulated to you as relates to what's going on in our world and the community. You have listened to Africa on the Move, it shows Brother Africa. Again, we're going to pause for this call so when we come back. We'd like to encourage you to call in and share your views and thoughts on maybe what is going on in your world and the community. So we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Thank you. 
black man or black woman, you're African. Don't forget that. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We will continue our discussion on what's going on in our world and the community. There were some earlier issues that were raised by our panelists and analysts, and we'd like to have some discussion on some of the issues that were raised by our panelists and analysts so we can get a better understanding of our world and our communities. Uh, right now, Brother Jabari raised the issue by a recent press conference that was held in Richmond, Virginia, by uh, the religious community, the clergymen, in reference to a economic development project using the name of Neighbor Hill. And the driving force behind this particular project seemed to be a, a large utility company called um, Dominion Powers. Now, he stated they have made over $300 million. One of the things when we talk about the utility companies must realize that they make their wealth off in front of the people. So even with this question of investment and putting back in the community, it's no more than the money that they have siphoned off from the community. So we need to recognize that game. But to my panelists, based upon the issue of um, clergymen who have taken a position to support um, this project where they weren't talking about building a, a, a economic zone in the center city of Richmond where they claim it will benefit the community and particularly African people while at the same time there's another project identified in the African community in one of the federal housing communities called Crane Court where it can displace a large number of African people with nowhere to go, but there has been no opposition from the religious community in terms of that. So, panelists, what do y'all think is going on in terms of looking at this um, phenomenon? Seems like we have seen this game played before historically as, as well as throughout the world in terms of when it comes to African people and displacement of our people in our communities. Your response, Brother Anthony? This Brother Africa, can I just add a couple more things um, before Brother Anthony responds? Yes, you can, Brother Jabari. Something that we have to do to put things into con- um, context. There was a study done in terms of those cities that would be very subject to following a similar trajectory in terms of what Detroit did, and Richmond, Virginia was amongst those cities. So as Richmond seeks to become more corporatized, we have to keep that in mind in terms of what happened in Detroit. And the other thing, too, um, it's important to note that Dominion was very savvy, in particular, given that Richmond was a mostly black city. They reached out in particular to the black clergy in terms of the statement they wanted to make. Because of the historic dynamic where pastors have a way of moving the communities to support certain major initiatives based off of how they think. And the last point, Jabari, I'd like to hear the panel response to it because you are right in terms of uh, but how can pastors, particularly African clergymen, take a position of supporting this project but there are no voices to be heard when it comes to the displacement of a large segment of the African community in Richmond. Panelists, what's going on with this? What's your, what? what's your take on this phenomenon? Yes, Brother Anthony. Yes. What's going on is an intensification of the class struggle inside the African community. In other words, the struggle between the have and the have-nots 
those who are rich and those who are poor is intensifying. And uh, the reason why I think dominion power is trying to get the clergy behind them is because they would there's a way of galvanizing uh community support for the efforts to uh exploit the community. And uh historically this has taken place in other places in the US, such as Detroit, uh such as uh Harlem and New York City and uh numerous other places where gentrification is going on. And what is happening is the fact that uh, that housing is becoming more expensive and it's become a premium. And so that, uh, so that housing in urban areas is, uh, is very much sought after by the, um, by the petty bourgeoisie and the poor are driven, are being driven out either to homelessness or being driven away from the cities in order to accommodate uh, the bourgeois elements that want closer access uh, to their corporate jobs. Okay, Brother Haki, is there some funny money that may be going on under the table? And historically, has always tried to bow off our leadership at the expense of our people. And even if that's so, how does that contradict the value of being a a, 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 a person of value, of values such as the values that are supposed to represent the religion of Christianity? Yeah, well, you, you hit it right on the head, Brother Africa. Uh, the question in terms of the role of money in terms of manipulating or controlling uh, preachers, because a long history. In fact, one of the things when we talk about the evolution of history, when we go back to colonial era, uh, one of the things that the, the the enslavers did was that they actually paid uh, these these black representatives uh, who, quote unquote, were positioned as preachers. They actually paid them in terms of allowance for, for providing they said the right thing. So those preachers who get up there and didn't say the right thing, then the, those those overseers on those plantations will remove them and replace them with someone else. But as an incentive, they would pay them money to make sure that they said the right thing. And so as a consequence, what happened is that you had a generation after generation of people who have been pro- essentially programmed to say the right thing on, from the pulpit. So I'm not surprised in terms of the role of money in terms of getting these, uh, these preachers to say, you know, what, they, what the power structure wants them to say. So I'm not surprised at all. As far as terms of, as far as terms of their commitment to humanity, one of the things we've got to understand that simply because someone said that they're, they're about religion doesn't necessarily mean they're about religion. One of the things I find ironic, and when you talk to a lot of these, these black preachers, uh, a lot of them know anything in terms of historically about the Bible. They can quote, you know, a, a, you know, a passage uh, or maybe quote scripture. But in terms of putting it all together and making sense of the Bible, they know, ver- they know most of them know very little in terms about the history of the Bible. And I find that extraordinary. For, for one who's claiming spirituality, in order, in order for you to, 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 to really um, – uh, uh, maintain that spirituality, then you, on the very minimum, you have to understand exactly, you know, what the Bible entails, what it means. And then, if you don't understand that, then you can never understand the African struggle. And in understanding the African struggle from a biblical perspective, then you understand your role, your responsibility in terms of making sure, you know, these kind of injustices are 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 are, are dealt with. They're resisted. You don't acquiesce. You don't participate in the oppression of of, of people. 
you know, simply based upon material gain. But of course, you know, those those individuals, those individuals in the African community who who are preachers who preach liberation theology, it's not likely they will be part of that kind that kind of manipulation. So the preachers that constitute the consequence, those kind of preachers that do actually participate in that kind and allow themselves to be manipulated like that, uh, you're running me a preachers who by and large know nothing at all in terms of the history of the Bible. And so therefore I'm not surprised at all. But it does call into to calls into question, you know, just how much do you really believe in believe in Christianity? If in fact you believe Christianity, if you believe Jesus uh stood on behalf of the poor, uh stood up for the powerless, if you really believe that, then how can you turn around and do those kind of things which in, empowers the wealthy? Now keep in mind, that movement has nothing to do in terms of empowerment of African people and enrichment. It has everything to do with do with, with what's going on throughout the country, which is enterprise zones. In other words, if you think back to the thirties, one of the ways in which they uh, they 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 trapped us in the cities. Was they created houses in the, in the suburbs? They created the malls in the suburbs. They created all of that. Then they made loans available to white people so they can purchase the homes and and and, and, and live the good life. While keeping us trapped in the hood, in, in the neighborhoods, in the cities with the poor housing and, and and all the all the problems affiliated with poverty. So clearly they're doing the exact opposite now. So now they want us out of the city. So what they're doing, they have these enterprise zones in which they're paying these, these corporations, these wealthy individuals, to so-called renovate the city for the sole purpose of elevating the cost of their properties, elevating the cost of housing, to effectively get run African people out of the cities because you simply won't be able to pay the, 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 the cost, the rents, uh, the mortgages that are required in terms of maintaining staying in the city. So it's part of the same historical game they've always played in terms of you know, uh, the exploitation of African people in society. Uh, if we're going to stay in the cities, uh, one thing that's very, very clear, then we have to do some serious brainstorming in terms of, you know, how we're going to go about doing that. Because if we don't, not only will we find a lot of us find ourselves homeless, but also a lot of us will find ourselves, you know, uh, stuck in the suburbs where rent is incredibly high anyway, in which we're not able to pay those rents, which ultimately leads to our homelessness. So we got some problems. And uh, but understand it's all part of a system. And to have these preachers as part of that system, I'm not surprised at all. That's been history. Well, outside of homeless hotkeys, the next step may be going back to become sharecroppers and maybe back to physical slaves as we, as we found ourselves when we arrived um, to this Western Hemisphere under their, under their control. And I think people don't understand this whole question of so-called illusion of freedom. Freedom ain't something you get and you want it forever. Freedom is something that you acquire, you get, and you have to continue to fight for it to maintain it. And yeah. I argue I argue that um, in the next 30 to 40 years, it's very possible the majority of African people will be back in childish slavery in the United States and possibly around the world if you keep going on this course. Um, but, Mr. Bobby, but we, you have something you want to say? You know, as you mentioned about this whole concept of going back into sharecropping, one thing we got to understand is that when you talk about the new Jim Crow and how after shadow enslavement they were mindful of the institute convict leasing, we've seen that escalate today in terms of this so-called idea of the way to um, deal with people who are death is to have them work um, low-paying jobs forever and then after they work the low-paying job, they go back to whatever penal institution they are um, put in. And a lot of them being able to work and go home until they pay the debt off, they have to work these low-paying jobs 
which enabled them, like I said, to have a long period of time to pay off whatever debt they may have incurred. So we see this happening. You know, um, Brother Anthony, you um, alluded to this phenomenon in terms of looking at it from a class perspective or a class struggle. And I was just thinking about that. And, Brother Moses, I'd like for you to take the lead on this one. If you could, give me your comments around this question of class struggle among Africans. Because I find it ironic when you're talking about the voice of the voiceless, you're talking about a large segment of the African population being displaced out of federal housing, let's say in the city of Richmond, Virginia, we're talking about. We know this is going on throughout all the cities inside the U.S. as well as outside. But we know that even among African people, we just can't afford the clergyman. But what about the everyday brothers and sisters who are not in their predicament but choose not to say nothing because they think they are better off than the brothers and sisters who live in federal housing um, uh, um, buildings? Your response to that, Brother Moses, and then other panelists can weigh in on it. Where do they fit in the scheme of things? Yeah, well, we, there is a class struggle going on, and it, it includes all, everybody uh, in the in the economy, the political economy, and and so obviously African uh, here are, are part of that struggle, and it, as it intensifies. Um, Internally, we see contradictions, and and uh, and you know we've got to recognize that what Marx said about religion being the opiate of the masses. Uh, uh, the you know we it's an escapism um, venture, uh, and a, rep- a repetitive. So long as the bell tolls, the monk goes on being a monk. Kind of situation, and and definitely religious leaders have been used as sort of a compador or, or some kind of buffer between the wealthy and the poor, and they try to placate the poor, and uh, you know that's that's been a historical problem. Uh, uh, it's it's the most it's very it's it's, it's seldom that you find. Of religious uh, uh, ministers that are political, that have correct political uh, stands on issues and stuff. That's rare. That's that's not a everyday thing. Everybody who's got a Bible is capable of starting the church. And and uh, with the economy being what it is, it's a it's a source of income that that's readily available. Usually on a part-time basis, they start and then they if they expand, they get their congregation going. But uh, you know, we we have got to you know focus on on politics, keep politics in command, and uh, and struggle against these uh, Zionists. Basically, uh, they're agents of Zionist Zionism in the community. Far as I can tell, and, and uh, they have a moral code that they're trying to perpetuate, but they they support the Zionist state, and that's a problem. So I, there's a lot of problems with religion. Uh, 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 I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. You know, Panis, uh One other aspect of looking at this phenomenon that Brother Bobby was speaking to in terms of the city of Richmond, Virginia, and the dynamics of maybe influencing ministers to sign off 
off on one particular project that can benefit corporate America and not their people, while at the same time not giving no attention to a large displacement of a group of Africans within the city ritual. I also see the parallel in terms of the same contradiction in terms of the um, the educators in this particular city. Uh, I'm reading what's going on in ritual. I understand that I believe next Monday they can have this statewide educational protest where the teachers can come into the capital, Richmond, Virginia, and complain, particularly in this area, Richmond and metropolitan area, and complain about they need more money, more pay. They need more resources for the school. But it seems to me they're fighting for their self-interest in terms of want to have more money, but they have no compassion for those who have a lot less than what it, than they have. Why aren't they saying anything about the gentrification and how they can displace a large segment of African people in this particular community that we call Creighton Court? Y'all response to that panelist, is something wrong with the type of education and values that they have internalized to say, look, I need more money there and they don't give a done about those who are from the same group but less fortunate economically. Is also this part of the class struggle, Brother Anthony, Brother Brother Haki and Jabari? Brother Anthony, you can start us off with your take on this. It is part of the class struggle and also is part of um, of the indoctrination uh, Africans receive from the educational system. Uh, see, one of the one of the underlying problems that confronts our community is our individualistic attitudes, and because we've uh, we're so we're hooked on a, a concept of individualism, we don't we we seem to think that the that what happens to other people around us, is, uh, you know, we 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 can escape that fate by following the dictates of capitalism that we're taught in school. And uh, because of that, we look down, uh, we, you know, we, uh, you know, a lot of Africans, uh, even among the working class, look down upon people that are less fortunate than they are. And that's because of, of, the, of what we've, the ideas that we've been indoctrinated in the school system and also the mass media to a lesser extent. Also, uh, let's see, uh, we have a problem with, um, uh, with, you know, not our, uh, with, um, you know, uh, capitalism and the fact that really, that really, that, uh, uh, as capitalism develops, the class struggle intensifies because the resources become more scarce and the damage that is being done to the planet becomes worse and more severe. So there really is a tremendous scramble for resources going on worldwide, not just inside the U.S., but worldwide, and it's intensifying. And as it intensifies, uh, the class struggle gets more heated, and there's going to be more greater degree of infighting. And the thing and the solution is that we have to realize that that there's a game being run on all Africans for our resources and labor, and we have to get organized. And we cannot, uh, you know, see ourselves 
as isolated or unique. Brother Haki, in the yeah, context well, of that, in the context of that educators and intellectuals and how they seem to take a priority of their self-interest for more money and negate the rest of the realities of the conditions of the people around them. Uh, what do you, what do you, um, how do you address, you know, that kind of behavior? Who are you talking to? Brother Haki, you. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, the, listen, listen, let's, let's, let's be clear on it. You know, we understand that the, the so-called middle class, to the extent that middle class actually exists in the African community, have internalized certain values which are antithetical to their own self-interest. They don't understand that. Their position is that uh, the way they feel is justifiable. In fact, to some extent, you know, you got to understand that they're scared also. And because they're scared, they tend to cling to whatever belief gives them comfort. And so it's not in their interest to even deal with the reality in terms of the, the, the suffering of their people because it's, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't do them. It doesn't empower them. And so, therefore, they tend to reject it. And this is the reason why when I talk about, for instance, we talk about the banks, right? Now, this guy, uh, the Orange Menace, you know, gave the banks the equivalent of $36 billion. Interestingly enough, when you look in terms of number of investments in terms of these, these six major banks that he gave all his money to, zero have been extended to community. So in other words, the ability of middle-class African people to have get access to money for mortgages uh, becomes almost nil. And so ultimately, it does affect the middle-class people. They don't understand that yet. They will understand it. They don't understand it now because, they, because they're holding on hope that, that, that things will work out for them. But they'll come, to, they'll come to understand that. Also, for instance, you know, when you talk about corporations making billions of dollars a year, but then you ask them how much taxes you pay, zero taxes. Well, if you pay zero taxes, then the probability or the possibility in terms of employment, jobs, becomes nil. What happens with that? all of those tax breaks they get? That money goes to the shareholders. They give it to the shareholders. So the shareholders make, make millions of dollars, not doing anything, but they make millions of dollars uh, for investments. They even take a lot of those jobs and ship them abroad, and they can pay people the equivalent of, you know, uh, $3 a day, you know. So clearly, you know, when you talk about terms of long-term interest in terms of having a job, it's compromised. So black middle class got, people got to begin to understand that you're also part of the system. And no matter how much you want to believe, if you just believe it's going to be all right, it just doesn't work that way. History has never worked that way. But you know what? Unfortunately, Brother Africa, you asked the question, what can we do to address that? Well, nothing you can do to address that. We can talk about this. We can talk about the systematic injustices that inflict the African community. There are those in the community who would say, well, hey, I hear you understand, and those who would categorically reject what we have to say, which is fine. I always maintain these conditions is going to force these people to deal with the concrete realities. Because right now, it's not in their interest to deal with reality. And so when you ask them, say, well, you're talking about more money for you as teachers, but then what about the poor kids who don't even have food to eat, coming to your class, looking at it, starving to death, looking at you trying to get through the day? Where's your compassion for them? How about their ability to learn? But clearly, if they don't have sustenance, then they, they, they compromise their ability to learn. Where is your concern about that? Why are you not in, in coming to Richmond to organize around that question? You know, because, again, it's not in their interest to deal with that. And, 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 things, and it does come down to, uh, to the class question. It also comes down to the race question because you've got a lot of these young white teachers who, who are ill-informed, who know nothing, absolutely nothing about the African experience. Even though you live in the same country, most of them don't live that experience. 
and then most of the interactions between African people and European people doesn't exist on a, on a large scale. And so, therefore, there's a tremendous amount of ignorance that exists in the white community. And so, therefore, when you try, when you call attention to the systematic abuse of children, black African children, they don't hear it because in their world they don't see it. And so, you got these problems. But that's not to say that the onus isn't on African people to change that change the conditions. It's onus on African people. I don't give a damn how much racism exists in the society. It's always been racist. It's going to continue to be racist. It'll probably be racist to destroy. It's always been that way. But the bottom line, the onus is on African people, and that we have to come to the realization that fundamentally that we have to change our mindset. We got to stop thinking like slaves and start thinking like free men and women in order to change the situation that we're confronted with. And if we don't then we continue to acquiesce and play this game, not understanding that ultimately acquiesce and playing this game is only going to lead to your defeat. And they, and, and they don't understand that. But I'm confident the history has been clear on this point that they will come to understand the reality, but it's going to have to affect them first and foremost before they begin to even think about it. And I just, that's just my view. And Brother Bobby, your final thoughts on the situation before we pause for this cause. Echoing a similar sentiment to Brother Haki, ultimately it is up to us to change the narrative, to change the paradigm. Because we're so fractured and we've gotten caught up in embracing a capitalistic system that has no appreciation for us, we oftentimes will turn a blind eye to that which we will feel is disadvantageous towards our personal um, progression. Your key word was personal progression. We're going to look at um, building a strong community, but long as myself and those who are close to me are doing well, then everything must be okay in society. If somebody else is doing well, it's their fault. So we got to get away from this whole um, lie of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because everybody somewhere gets assistance to be able to move forward, period. Okay, panelists, listen to the audience. You listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to pause for the calls. When we come back, we will continue the discussion on what's going on in your world and the community. And when we come back, Brother Moses raised the issue about yesterday there was international and national outcry, anti war movement against U.S. out of uh, Iraq and no war against Iran. That was a Worldwide phenomenon where the people have been coming out speaking against uh, U.S. and West aggression. We're going to talk about that and its relation impact on our people and community. So right now we're going to pause for the cause and we'll be right back. You are listening to Africa on the Move. Africa, brought 
we have to, you know, be uh, educated about what's going on. That's that's the critical thing. And whether you go to the demonstration or not, at least be conscious of what what is actually going on. There's so many people that just are unconscious. Thank you. Anyone else would like to take a stab at the significance of the people responding um, to opposition of these present walls that are going on, the intervention and other people, nations, just for the benefit of sealing and trying to control other people's resources? You know, I want to yeah, raise a I question, question, brother. Sorry, sorry. Okay, excuse me. Um, the question I want to raise is that while I do not have an issue for a process done in proper context, when is it that in terms of when people want to organize these kind of events, they will do it while those they're trying to address are going to be present? Because what I've noticed is oftentimes on weekends or holidays or those days where those who need to hear this message aren't present, that's when most of the people are going to be visible and available in terms of um, speaking out against these kind of issues. So, Bobby, that's a good question. I'd like to hear our panelists address that. I often raise that as well. That seems to be tactically maybe that in terms of the timing event may not be chosen at a time that seem to be most effective in terms of addressing it to those who are making these kind of policies. I often raise that question. Panelists, I'd like to hear your analysis and response to that question. Brother Anthony, then Brother Hackey. Sure. Uh, well, one, uh, in, in response to that question about uh, the way the demonstrations are organized, uh, you know, I think it's a reflection of the of the poor organization of the working class that they that they don't that they don't organize them to take place at the time when they would have maximum impact and would truly and would be truly disruptive of what uh, of uh, uh, of what's going on in society and uh, they and they allow uh business as usual to go on by organizing them on weekends i know that that's that's probably designed to maximize people's availability but it doesn't seem to uh, work in um you know in the confusion that exists among much of the working class people in this society. Uh, let's see, in terms of the demonstrations in general, I think they reflect uh, a genuine concern and anger and frustration with uh, these uh, uh, endless imperialist wars in the name of the fight against terrorism. And also, and I think that there are people that are going to realize that these wars only enrich uh, the, uh, the, the, the the bourgeoisie at the expense of the masses of working class and poor people. And, uh, and also, I think people need to bear in mind that, uh, that, that the these imperialist wars that are being waged around the world, it is the poor and working class that's bearing the brunt of the labor and casualties of these wars on all sides. 
And I think there's a growing awareness of that, and I think that's why you're seeing a much greater opposition to these wars in the imperialist countries of the world. And what has to intensify is love of organization and political education of the masses of people. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, when you talk about the timing of, you know, of these events, uh, one of the things that we have to understand, you know, um, there is a, there is some, some, some level of duplicity that exists among, you know, you know, certain organizers in terms of the time of these events. Uh, there should be discussions in terms of maximizing the potential for turnout. But a lot of times these discussions don't take place uh, simply because those individuals who run these organizations want to make sure that they minimize the actual turnout. So we do have that kind of uh, duplicity that exists in the movement. And one of the things you've got to be very, very careful about, simply because someone say that they're, that they're, they're committed to the, to, the, to the struggle, doesn't mean that they're committed to the struggle. And we've got to be very, very careful about this. So we've got to distinguish between those, you know, who are truly committed versus those who are questionable in terms of their application, you know, of struggle. Um, I, I think that, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things I, I think about, uh, I think back in New York where we had over um, 3 million people who came out, and, of course, the media didn't talk about it. But we had 3 million people. We, we, we covered the entire Times Square all the way from uh, 100 and, 140. 144th Street all the way down to 34th Street, which is wall-to-wall people around it, you know, uh, came to demonstrate against the Iraqi war. And, this, and despite that mobilization, uh, still they went to war. So I say that to say that the, one of the things that we got to be very, very clear on, if we're not very, we're not really committed to the idea in terms of putting an end to imperialism, then we're just wasting our time. Uh, we have to be really, really committed to that idea. And the one thing I like about the Yellow Vest and the unions in France is that they're very, very committed to the idea in terms of overthrowing that, uh, that, that the, the fundamental inequities that exist in that system over there in France. So that I admire, and it's just a stone throw away from, you know, changing that whole system because the reality is that they understand just how duplicitous, just how corrupt uh, capitalism is, how uh, inhumane it is, and they begin, they understand that now. And they got mass people, and they got like 70% of the people who approve of what they're doing in the streets. Uh, in America, we haven't reached those kind of numbers in terms of um, in terms of accept, accepting movements like that. Uh, right now, we're in a stage where we're still trying to get people to understand what fundamentally the problems are as related to capitalism. So we still got a lot of work ahead of us in terms of you know uh, you know getting people to understand the fundamental problems associated with capitalism. But when we get to that point, if we can create movements where we got 70% of the people in support of movements when people take to the street, then the possibility that we can actually change things increases tremendously. So the struggle for us is, is, to, you know, is to, one, identify those individuals who are truly committed to the struggle. Uh, secondly, those individuals who understand that this question in terms of quality versus quantity, uh, uh, that quantity doesn't, doesn't always mean a successful resolution uh, as a, as relate to 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 change, and, and thirdly, uh, you know um, those kind of strategies which maximize the potential for people to actually come out. So I think we have to do all those things in terms of you know of making this movement viable, because if we don't do that, one thing is clear that the the mass of the people are uh, subjected to 24 hours a day the the BS that uh, comes on the radio, but comes on the television, uh, and so 
Therefore, we got our work cut out for us. But uh, clearly, you know, uh, to Javari's question, he's absolutely correct. we got to be mindful of the fact that there are those individuals out here who have misdirect these movements for the sole purpose of um, uh, for, for material gain. So you got to be very careful about that. But if we speak to just uh, uh, political expression, attempting uh, to express your 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 desire, your, your will towards an issue, um, do they have any value in terms of um, conducting these kind of protest demo panelists? I don't think you can yes, control. Yeah, I think control there is some value. Yeah, you can't control you can't control people's motivations. I mean, we that's off the table. We can't do that. The only thing we can do is objectively look at what they're doing and, and ask, raise the question, why? It's all we can do. Uh, so it's incumbent upon us, you know, to you know to to find those individuals, you know, who are truly committed to the struggle, and work with them. Uh, that's the only thing you can do. We can't, you know, we can't. We we can diminish people's motivations. I mean, people have all kinds of motives for doing what they do, and, and we're not in a position in terms of uh, minimizing those motivations. So there's nothing we can really do. The only thing we can do is try to identify those individuals who are committed to the struggle and work with them. That's all you can do. Yeah. Also, I think also in addition, I think any permanent political organization that's created has to have a political education component to increase people's level of commitment and consciousness to the struggle. Uh, it's going to be a, at a very low level because we're organizing in a capitalist society. And uh, societies are capitalist because uh, uh, the level of uh, educa- uh, the uh, education organization among the workers is very low. So any political permanent political organization has to work to increase that. In addition to engaging in the political activity, it has to engage in political education. That's a very good question. That's a very good point, Brother Anthony. That's a very good point. Uh, that's a very, very good point. Uh, it, raises the question, it raises the question in terms of seriousness. Uh, if you say you want to move in, but you do nothing in terms of move, driving people in that direction, then you, you're playing games. You got, you got you got to have that political component. You have to, because uh, without that, simply just meeting folks and and and, and having them, you know, have, you know, and and, and 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 bringing people together, that's all in good in terms of you know in terms of polemics, but does nothing in terms of you know really getting down to the nitty gritty of forming in a movement. So therefore, uh, it's a real problem in the movement. A lot of people don't actually implement that that political component. It's simply more a social event than anything else. I think it's going. I think it's in the, clearly in the long term is that it's that is counterproductive, uh, and I think it it, uh, it makes it more difficult in terms of real organizing because people are so conditioned to, you know, socializing that when it comes to serious business in terms of movement, uh, uh, people uh, people uh, we don't create the proper conditions for people, you know, are amenable to that very idea. So I think that's a very good point that you raise. Um, Tabari Moses, any final thoughts on the subject? Well, I think uh, education education is definitely needed. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. I mean, that's the whole purpose. Uh, 
the consciousness and to make people more aware and to empower people. Knowledge is power. And uh, when we all get together on with on the same accord, you know, things will change. Thank you. So, Bobby, you have some final thoughts on this issue? If not, what we want to do is, Brother Anthony, uh, you had raised a question earlier about the people in Mali in Africa calling for the French military to leave the country. And the French is responding to their demand as a no, that they're not going nowhere. I also know in terms of looking at that particular issue, it also seems to raise the head of the issue of neocolonialism. Not only the people are asking for the French military to leave the country, but you have this old scholar government and leadership is stating that the French military has a need to stay there. So at this stage of the game, it seems like this issue is making it real clear of the impact and the role of neocolonialism. neocolonialism. Can you just speak a little bit to those two contradictions? The people want one thing while the leadership is in opposition against the masses? Well, the problem is that the uh, that the the leadership in most African countries is it, 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 it has a bourgeois orientation. They're looking for their own self, out for their own selfish individual interests, and don't care about the interests of the masses of the people. And uh, and uh, that's the, uh, a major contradiction. And um, uh, it seems like uh, as as day by day the 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 the, uh, the consciousness of the masses is becoming clearer uh, that uh, that it is actually these uh, imperialist troops in these countries that are contributing to the instability and lack of development in these areas, and that's why they uh, the, the the Malians want the French to leave. And uh, the French have no intention of doing so, which shows that without uh, uh, an all-African high command, without uh, attempts at building Pan-Africanism, uh, imperialism will not be for, will not be uh, driven from Africa unless the masses of African people get organized and there's a concerted effort to fight for genuine independence and not sham independence that can only come about through Pan-Africanism and attempts to build Pan-Africanism. Right now, uh, uh, let's see, there's too much disorganization among the masses of working people and, uh, and not sufficient political education to increase their organizational level so that they can actually fight to get the imperialists out of Africa. And that's what it's going to take. Panelists, Brother Haki, Brother Zibari, seem like to me in this case is a symbolic of the problem that all of the African nations will have to face when they ask the military or the foreign countries to leave, is that they will have to first get rid of the reactionary governments that they have before they can actually get to the real enemy. 
Y'all respond to that statement? Yep, that's that's absolutely Indeed. correct. I mean, that's that's you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the problems if we talk about neocolonial puppets, uh, clearly Africa has a big, big problem in terms of that that, that phenomenon. And uh, you're right. Uh, unless you have bona fide leadership that represents the interests of the people, then clearly their incentive is to go along with the Western powers, and that's precisely what's going on. But let me just raise one thing real quick, little brother Africa. I think it's important that I underscore this. And that is that, you know, the French, in terms of operating in the street sales, uh, you know, all the way from Western Africa to Eastern Africa, uh, they got a large stretch of, of, of African lands in which they're, they're, trying, they're trying to control. And they called upon the Germans in, to participate in terms of that whole, that whole military intervention. Well, the Germans have been resistant for a while, but recently I read, I read, read some, some information pertaining to the German decision to send, you know, 1,500 troops to the Seychelles. Uh, clearly, uh, the French have been instrumental in terms of convincing the German leadership, you know, that if you want your piece of the pie, then you better participate in terms of the subjugation of, of the African continent. So this this re struggle, uh, the restruggle for, uh, for Africa uh, is is on again. And one of the things is that uh, even though um, the masses of people in Africa, the brothers and sisters, are very clear in terms of the recolonization of Africa is on, you got a ruling class of whatever reason uh, ill. Uh, ill-advised or ill-informed who don't understand that the struggle for Africa is real and is ongoing, and, and they continue to participate in the subjugation of Africa. So uh, I, I, I think that until you have the bona fide leadership, nothing's going to change. And I think the but the, the the youth in Africa will continue to stand up, not just in Mali, but in, in the Congo, uh, in Ghana, uh, Kenya, across the continent. Young people continue to stand up. Uh, maybe not in mass, not yet, but it'll get there. Panelists, is this a we live we live in the period of a Berlin conference time period where you are trying to consolidate consolidate its base again and they're making certain decisions among themselves on how and who will continue to control Africa. Brother Jabari, Brother Moses, y'all take on that thought? Repeat the question, please. Uh, we're looking at maybe a rebirth of looking at a, a redevelopment of a Berlin Conference uh, historical period where, you know, back in 84, 85, well, you know, we um, know um, Brother Africa, something that came to my mind in regards to the French presence in Mali. One thing we look at Mali's culture and historically what they've contributed to society. Is, this is what the home of the Dogon is in terms of those um, scar, those African geniuses that were able to map out the cosmos while using none of these expensive instruments that NASA used as it supposedly say they're studying space. They mapped out the cosmos and gave us a good um, advanced understanding of exactly how the composition of the galaxy as we know it. So it's very interesting when you look at certain imperialist forces say they want a space force. And you've heard imperialist forces mention this throughout time. So it shows clearly, strategically, from a knowledge base, they would want to maintain a strong presence there. In regards to a Berlin conference, let's be realistic. We hear time and time again natural resources are unfortunately being depleted by those that are wasteful in terms of these imperialist nations. So why not go to the places where the national resources are abundant? From a, from a geographical standpoint, Mali is important. From a natural resource um, standpoint, it's important to have a presence there as well as all throughout Africa. So 
So as it becomes a matter of survival, of course they're going to want to engage in this and keep the others out so that they can benefit and make money from the natural resources that run abundant in Africa. Brother Moses, what you think? Are they replaying um, the legacy of the so-called Berlin Conference where you have trying to consolidate yourself at the expense of forward to continue control and dominate Africa, African people and their resources? Yeah, the 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 situation has continued. Uh, the Berlin Conference, I mean, they have never really stopped on. Uh, they're colluding and contending for spheres of influence and and uh, the the powers. The powers are trying to control the resources of Africa and all third world countries of Latin America, Asia. Um, um, this is this is you know. This is what imperialism does. This is this is uh, expected to be expected behavior. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it. Thank you. You know, panelists, when we make our transition to our theme tonight, as we stated, we'll talk about part two: weapons, technology, and oppression. I would like to just get a response from each one of y'all in terms of this whole issue of illusion of. Um, France and its power. Um, those who study the development of France, and as we look at France today, we know that ultimately the real reality and what allow France to, stay, to exist is that continued domination of resources of their former colonies, former colonies in West Africa. If these colonies, former colonies in West Africa today, decided to no longer go under the French authority and reject all of the various relationships they have with France, politically, economically, France could not even maintain themselves as an independent country. Your response to that reality? That is true. Um, I read somewhere in an article that uh, that uh, Africa contributes nearly $500 billion a year in terms of um into to France's treasury through the um uh CF uh central uh the CFA franc the currency that's used in most francophone countries with the exception of Guinea and Guinea uh, uh for those who might not uh, not be aware was the only for, uh, former French colony to vote no to the uh, French African Union uh, back in 1958. All the other former co- colonies acquiesced, and that's why, even though the, uh, uh, they got sham independence, and France to this day dominates their economies. And the only way to put uh, to put an end to that. Is for uh, is for Africa to unite, which is what Nkrumah, uh, Ture, uh, Ture and uh, Modibo Keita of Mali pushed for during the 60s. Their governments were ultimately overthrown, and right now neocolonialism is running rampant over the African continent. But until the people get organized. Uh, you know, uh, this will uh, this will continue, and it's a continuation, not an interruption. So it's not so much a repetition of the Berlin Conference; 
is the fact that it was never ended. Pan-Africanism will put an end to that, but it has to be achieved. And it's something we have to organize to fight for. Yeah, that, that currency uh, in the West African states, they refer to as the CIFA. And fortunately, uh, the CIFA the is being phased out. Um, the West African states, um, under previously under French domination, position is that they want to fall under the, the rubric of the of the euro. The problem is that they still don't have control of their currency. So, as Gaddafi said, and one of the things he advocated was the need for a central bank of Africa. And we see we have that need not only in terms of setting the, your, the value of your currency, but also to control the price of your commodities. So, you still need that central bank. So. Even though this seems like a move forward in terms of, you know, getting rid of the CIFA and going under the euro, the bottom line is the exportation or the systematic abuse of those economies haven't changed. So that is the fundamental contradiction. So clearly until African leaders come to the position that they're, they're, they're tired of being, being you know, um, uh, uh, tools you know, you know, for, other, for other states, until they get to that point, they continue to play ball. And as long as they continue to play ball, they're going to continue to get screwed. And so, therefore, changing it to the euro does nothing in terms of um, uh, um, uh, freeing Africa, you know, from um, foreign domination. You know, it seems to me one of the things that it does do, uh, panelists, is that it consolidates your interests or be willing to more work together and, and support each other, um, given that, you know, it will be under that particular currency in which they all the governor economy back. So it's really interesting. But anyway, panelists, this is what we could do right now. Uh, we're going to pause for the calls. When we come back, we'd like to make the transition from what's going on in our community and your world to talk a little bit about our theme tonight, Part 2, Weapons, Technology, and Oppression. And the question I'd like everyone to uh, think about and our listening audience, we invite you to call in and share your thoughts on. And the question is, is tact is taxing wealth is good? Is that a good thing by taxing wealth? We'd like to have that discussion and more as we turn from Africa on the moon. We'll be right back.
how we love you. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're now making that transition to part two of our theme tonight, Weapons, Technology, and Oppression. As you stated before our break, that was an interesting article that was written by Michael Linden from The Guardian on February 13, 2019. Very interesting article entitled, Taxing Web is Good. Now, before we have our panelists weigh in on this particular article, I'd like to just read a couple points that this article articulated as it, as it raised the issue about the possibility of taxing weapons good. And he stated that what could the U.S. afford if it raised billionaire taxes? If the richest 1% of American household pay at the same rate they did in the 40s and the 50s, the change could be transformative. Question patterns panelists, is taxing wealth, is that a good thing? Start off with your uh, analysis, Brother Anthony. And for our listening audience who are listening to the program, if you have any views or comment, please call 323-679-0841. And you need to hit one, and we will not at your last four numbers. So, Brother Anthony, lead on. Oh, what do you think about taxing wealth? Is that a good thing? Yes, it is. Um, and, uh, and the thing about it, though, um, you know, the the thing is, uh, most politicians are resistant to raising tax on the rich because they think that their concern is the rich would take their that uh, their their wealth and and go elsewhere. But uh, let's see. But uh, taxing wealth is good because it would increase. The amount of revenue uh, in the U.S. Treasury, which could which could go toward things like um, health care, Social Security, uh, Medicaid, etc., and unemployment, and uh, and even uh, maybe alleviate unemployment conditions in some cases. Uh, as the article points out. Uh, taxing wealth at the level it was during the 40s and 50s would create a, a, a great deal of revenue, uh, uh, you know, over and beyond what, what the U.S. takes in right now. What would create even more revenue if, if the U.S. cut it, uh, uh, cut its military spending and uh, and allocated that toward uh, – uh, you, you know, more, more, uh, needs that would be more beneficial to human beings and the environment. But uh, taxing wealth in and of itself would uh, would generate sufficient revenue so that it could actually uh, increase spending for programs that benefit human beings. Brother Hackey, what's your narrative on tax and wealth? Is that a good thing from your perspective? I agree wholeheartedly. Not only would I tax wealth, Brother Africa, but I tax income as well. I would tax both. But interestingly, the article talks about the fact that during the next 10 years, the, wealth would, the wealthy would take home, 20, in terms of wealth, $22 trillion. And that averages out to $1.7 million per family. Interestingly enough, you know, uh, also they talked about the fact that, you know, um, they talked about a 30% interest rate, uh, I mean tax, 30% interest uh, tax rate, 30% tax rate 
uh, for the you know for the, for the wealthy. Now this thirty percent tax rate is not a is not a, 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 a you know effective tax rate. The effective tax rate is actually what you tax people. The nominal tax rate is what the papers say you should be taxed. So we talk about the loopholes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> the tax policy, a lot of times it's thirty percent. It's not really thirty percent. But assuming that it was a really effective tax rate, actually thirty percent. If you increase that by ten percent, let's say a forty percent tax rate. Which you know, like, like Brother Anthony alluded to, which they paid back in the 40s and 50s. If you create tax rate at, at the tax wealth at 40 percent, then you're talking about over 10 year period, about three trillion dollars in revenue. And the thing about this is that the wealthy still don't lose because they still bring home after tax, after taxes, they bring home 1.4 million dollars per family. So, you, so they still benefit either way. So this three trillion dollars that we're talking about could be used for a lot of things in terms of you know <clears throat> um, social spending, employment, uh, infrastructure repairs, uh, SSI, Medicare, Medicare, all of which they're talking about to getting rid of. So clearly, taxing wealth is a very good idea. I think most people are beginning to understand that fundamental point in America. So I think it's a very excellent idea to tax wealth. Hey, Brother Hackey, before we let you go on this issue, can you explain the distinction between wealth and income for our listening audience who may not know the difference? Yeah, well, well, income is what you make, let's say, your paycheck. That's your income. You bring home every two weeks, every month, whatever. You, that's, what, that's your income. Wealth is everything you own. So if I'm wealthy and I own a you know, $500 million boat, you know, I own my, my, my Lamborghinis are $200,000 a piece. You know, I add all that up. That gives you. Oh, my house. My house is valued at a uh, hundred million dollars. I add up that. It gives you a, 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 a total total value in terms of how much wealth I obtain. So that's the difference between income and wealth. Okay, brothers and Bobby and Moses, I'd like to you respond to this paragraph where they wrote uh, justifying why wealth should be taxed, because ultimately the wealth that the wealthy has actually come from the same people that they use to oppress them. It says that uh, for most of the last four decades, the gains from economic growth have flown overwhelmingly to the rich. Much of those gains to the rich were earned in any traditional sense, but rather exacted excess profit squeezed out of a system designed to favor those who already have power, position, and wealth. Today, the top 1% of Americans own more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. It's no wonder abolishing billionaires has become a rallying cry. Your response to that, Brother Moses? Yes. Um, you know, the wealth, the, the wealth a Marxist analysis of wealth is, is, is critical. Uh, to understanding wealth, you know, the class struggle and the political economy and the, the exploitation takes place, that this, this worker is working and their surplus labor is created and the wealth are appropriated. The, and so the, the products are produced, but the wealth is, is not distributed according to the people who, who made the product. But it's appropriated by the owners, and so, in that sense, you know, they rob they rob the workers, and so, you know, they taxing them is is is, is naturally uh, 
are necessary. Uh, uh, in, in the text, the state should be uh, uh, contributing to the well-being of the, of the population and its citizenry, and and so the wealth should be appropriated by the state and and distributed in terms of health care and and education, etc. So it's, it's about how wealth is created is, is critical. Uh, that's that's what differentiates the bourgeois economists from the Marxist political economists. Uh, and the exploitation takes place, and the the bourgeoisie doesn't recognize exploitation. Thank you. You know, continuing the point that brother brother Moser raised about the contradiction of uh, having wealth. I would say, um, Brother Anthony and Brother Haki, um, is there a good thing or something flawed about a system by creating a concept of billionaires and trillionaires? Should that be something that, you know, people should look at and try to maybe let's see how we can eradicate just the whole idea of that to be able to exist in the system where few people can be billionaires or trillionaires and more and majority of people have very little, if any. It's an unjust system, uh, and um, it's based upon the exploitation of a, of a few of the of the majority, and uh, and it's inherently unjust. And uh, you know, uh, could, uh, 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 any a society that uh, in which a few consume most of the resources. Is bound to cause instability and imbalance. And uh, uh, let's see, a a scientific socialist society, on the other hand, in which you minimize the disparity between rich and poor, you don't eliminate it entirely. As socialism develops, you know, then uh, then uh, you know becomes a system where. Uh, from uh, from from each according to ability, and to each according to need, uh, then you th- then you create a society where there's neither rich nor poor, and that's what any uh, socialist society aspires to. But uh, you know, but uh, you know, uh, taxing wealth, uh, you know, under cap- uh, under under this uh, economic system. It's a good thing for the majority of the people because it, it means that uh, that more of uh, what uh, uh, of uh, the, the, the profits generated from their work go to them. But it is, a, but but it is a difficult process. But ultimately, uh, you know, the greatest benefit would be with the abolition of capitalism. You know, Brother Hackey, one thing to get people to aspire you to aspire to become is become a billionaire and trillionaire. This is one of the best things they can do. Do so you think this is a noble idea as it relates to human development? It's absurd. It's absurd. Number one, you, we got to understand that no individual can accumulate that kind of productivity to a billion dollars worth. It's just. It's just, it's just crazy. It's absurd. I mean, it's not even worth discussing because it's so absurd. Only context in America could you justify giving one human being, you know, a trillion dollars. 
uh, you know, interesting enough, though, and I listened to Brother F, I mean, Brother Robert, and the thing is that, you know, it's very, it becomes very clear to me that we have um, capitalism for poor people, but socialism for the rich. And so, therefore, that would explain, you know, in terms of these, 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 these outrageous amount of money, you know, individuals receive in society, even though you have a tremendous amount of poverty that exists side by side. But, the, you know, so, so clearly, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, for anybody, I remember in, uh, talking to um, many, many years ago, talking to my, uh, one of my old professors, and he was talking about when the exploitation exists. And he talked about the old supply-demand curve. And uh, he said, well, when the demand curve exceeds the supply curve, that's when you that's when you have exploitation. And I'm sitting there looking at him, and I'm thinking to myself, man, how fucking how fucking ridiculous is this? How, I mean, just how ridiculous is this? You know what I mean? Uh, you know, number one, I mean, the whole point is that, you know, when you talk about when you, when, you, when, you, when you talk about demand, it's, it's, it's something that it's not static. It's something that uh, varies according to what, what you're talking about and who you're talking about. Uh, clearly, you know, wealthy people have access in terms of uh, greater demand than poor people. But it doesn't mean that, that wealthy people's demands are more uh, to be taken more seriously than demands of poor people. So it's a kind of perverted and kind of strange kind of logic that's which unique to capitalism. So I think to the extent that people think humanely, I think they begin to realize that this notion that, that, that one human being could be could have billions or trillions of dollars, I think it's, it's on that level that people begin to realize the absurdity of the system. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people do aspire to be billionaires or trillionaires, not understanding, you know, uh, the reality is that you, you most people will never aspire to be a trillionaire or a billionaire. Unless you're just fortunate to have be born into wealth and you have the right kind of connections in which people are willing, you know, to uh, bend the rules to ensure that you achieve that milestone. So clearly this, this notion in terms of having poverty side by side with, 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 with uh, trillionaires and billionaires is absurd. But it, it only has any relevance to the extent that capitalism gives its relevance, gives its relevance. You know, panelists, as we talk about the theme, weapons, technology, and oppression, one of the things looking at the American tax system is very recessive, recessive tax, which means that uh, the more you make, the less proportionate tax you pay. Is this a tool that we should maybe look at changing? Definitely. I think it should be changed. It should be uh it should be a, a progressive. I think uh uh you know the uh the the more the more uh the the more you make the rather uh 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 you know the 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 rich should be taxed more heavily uh than the poor who have least. Again, uh you know uh you know this is um you, you you know this type of system you know is absurd as uh, Haki correctly pointed out that you have uh, such a disparity between rich and poor, but that's a consequence of the development of capitalism, and and and, and in this especially in the stage where finance capital dominates, uh, you know uh, you know the uh, the workers. So uh, you know, once that system is destroyed, then because no no, no individual produces, uh, you know, uh, you know that level of wealth, uh, uh, you know, individually, 
it takes a group to produce that kind of wealth. And uh, so it should, so so no, uh, you know, no one individual produces, uh, you know, a uh, uh, million dollars a year worth of wealth. No one, no individual produces that. And uh, and the things that uh, that the ruling class spends their money on, like uh, sports and entertainment, et cetera, no one's labor, uh, no one individual uh, is worth several million dollars, while someone else's labor is only worth maybe uh, maybe five thousand dollars a year, you know. So that kind of disparity. You know, it's caused by capitalism, which is an exploitative system. And, uh, you know, Malcolm X was right. Uh, you have to be a blood sucker to be a capitalist. And, uh, and capitalists uh, uh, live off the blood and sweat of the working masses. And, you know, also what's interesting, Brother Africa, is that when you, when you, when you talk about you know, capitalism, a capitalism position is that there's varying levels of humanity. There is the low humanity, there's the middle humanity, there's the higher humanity, and then there's the super higher humanity. It gets absurd. And to the extent that people accept this kind of conditioning, speaks values in terms of the capitalist's ability to utilize propaganda to get people to believe in things which is totally foolish. To believe in this stuff is to say somehow that you're less human than somebody based upon, their, based upon material things, based upon wealth. And for anybody who believes that, and then you got to you got to realize that if in order to believe such a thing, then you got to see yourself as as considerably less worth of less worth. And if you consider yourself as less worth, then it's understandable why you allow a system to treat you as less than a human being. Because if your position is that you're of lesser worth based upon your earnings, then you allow the system to treat you as less because and, and I got to give it to the capitalists. They've done a very good job, not just in America, but throughout the world, telling people that you're that you're worth. Uh, your self-image is, hinges upon how much money you earn, how much money you make, your status, in other words. And mere fact that people swallow that, it seems to me just on a, hum, on a humane level, we will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold, hold. I can never justify in my mind that I'm less than somebody else because they make more money than me. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm human. I'm part of, if, if you're religious, you're part of this creation. If you're political, then you're equal to everyone else. Uh, you know, so the mere fact that you swallow this, this, this nonsense about your worth is defined by how much you make. Seems to me that you're, you know, seems to me that there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of the way you think, in terms of particularly when it comes to your self-esteem or your self-image. So clearly, you know, uh, capitalism does a very good job in terms of conditioning people to to accept almost anything done to them under the guise that they are less worthy, worthy to someone who's wealthy. So that's crazy, but. That's capitalism. You know, as we look at how the society has used this concept of taxing or taking from the poor and giving to the rich as a tool of oppression, I found it really interesting, and I'd like to get um, the panelists' take on how they got us to, to buy into the whole idea that Social Security is an entitlement, and therefore they have the right to take that away from you. I always thought that Social Security was part of a process where this is money that you have worked for and they have taken out of your labor for you to be able to use it later on. But now they're talking about maybe taking it away from you as entitlement, 
But this is your money. So how do how did they get us to buy into that? Okie doke, panelists. What do y'all make of that particular strategy philosophy? That they have every right to say you don't necessarily have to or may not be giving your social security money because it's entitlement. But isn't that the same money that you work in throughout your career working? Why are you not entitled to that money? How does it become entitlement? I'd like to just hear y'all take on that. Brother Moses, Brother Anthony, Brother Haki. Well, the power to define is the power to rule, and we cannot accept their definitions. If we if we accept their definitions and their terminology and their meanings or they put on things, then we'll never get out of this situation we find ourselves in. We'll be exploited and oppressed forever. Uh, we have to start defining, you know, for ourselves what's really going on and, and, and analyzing for ourselves what's really going on. And uh, definitely there's exploitation taking place, and we have to understand that and not be wavering on that question. Uh, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Brother Anthony, your take on this concept of Social Security entitlement, even though you're working, can't you work for your money? You created your, came from your labor. Who has the right to take that from you? How do you view that particular um, ongoing struggle? Actually, the don't let the way society uh, capitalism can keeps the workers confused on that question is by not teaching uh, the history of how Social Security in the U.S. came about. Social Security is one of the one of the remnants of the New Deal legislation that was passed during the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration in the early 1930s. It was an effort to preserve capitalism. That's how it came about. Actually, Social Security existed under, uh, under, uh, exists under social, uh, you know, under socialist societies. It's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a minimum pr- provision uh, for, uh, for for the for the labor the worker puts in during a cor- uh, during the course of his working life or her working uh, you know uh, period, and it's to compensate them for that period of time when they long they they they're long, no longer able to produce at the same level than when they were younger. And uh, it's not an entitlement. It's actually a human right. But capitalism has a soul, uh, uh, you know, that is an entitlement because, as uh, Brother Robert alluded to, uh, the way they define things. And until the workers get the power, then, uh, then they can turn it on its head and define it correctly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right, brother Africa. Uh, Social Security is not entitlement; it's a trust. It's something that you pay into, and so they're not giving you anything. This is what, actually they steal from you, because when you, after working, you know, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years, uh, in, in 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 addition to the interest that accrue, that they pay you peanuts based upon what you contribute to that plan. So it's, it's a definitely a trust fund. It's not an entitlement, but they call it entitlement. Simply because a couple of reasons. Number one, they call it entitlement because in, in capitalist mind, they should have access to that money. 
In other words, they see all money is their money, and they should have a right to have that money in terms of making investments. And that's what they're all about. And the second thing is that their position is, the capital position is that, you know, um, money should be used for productive purposes. In other words, uh, for people who simply, you know, you know, take, you know, accept their Social Security, uh, their money is not being put to productive use. And so, therefore, in their mind, they should have access to money because they can do make the money productive. They can invest it and make more money. And so, therefore, in their mind, that money by right belongs to them. And this is the, 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 the absurdity, this is the, the insanity in terms of the capitalist mindset, which is why sometimes we talk about discourse in terms of some of reasoning with people, you get you come to an impasse. Because when you talk to the capitalist mindset, they don't understand in terms of the fundamental premise of terms of right versus wrong. They don't see the world that way. For them, everything is expediency. And so therefore them, they have access to your money so they can invest, so they can make more profit. It's the way things should be, and rightfully so, in their mind. So clearly, you know, uh, you know, you're right. It's it's not an entitlement, but they call it entitlement simply because the the, the undermining supposition is, you know, that money belongs to the capitalists, and that is fucking crazy. Okay, panelists, job well done tonight. As we discuss part two, weapons, technology, and oppression. What we want to do right now is quickly to go through our final thoughts for tonight, and we'll start with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, you know, Social Security is 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 a right to, of workers to have some safety net when they no longer can work. And these safety net programs, uh, you know, uh, uh, were won through labor and sweat and tears of of the working class in terms of trying to get a better deal from the capitalist class and so the new deal was inaugurated but and so we can't give up we can't they're cutting back and cutting back and shifting the 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 balance of budget on the backs of the working class uh as they continue to appropriate money for wars and et cetera. and so we have to we have to recognize what's going on and and not not uh give in to their their Austerity programs. Um, it's been an interesting show. I'm glad I was able to participate. I'll look forward to another. Thank you and good night. Good night, Brother Moses. We thank you for your contribution to today's program. And we now go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight. You know, Brother Africa, you know, uh, we, we, we got this kleptocracy that exists in America. We got these criminal the criminal class in which in absolute control. They have no respect for humanity. They don't even know what humanity means. I mean, when you talk about humanity, they, they, you, you lose them, you confuse them, because they don't understand what, precisely what that means. Uh, for them, it's everything about the bottom line. It's always the bottom line. And so humanity, uh, what is right versus what is wrong, is simply moot uh, questions that are irrelevant in the minds of the capitalists. So having said that, we got to understand that as a people, you know, uh, you know we have a right to exist. we got to ask yourself, if I have a right to exist, what am I willing to do in terms of protecting my right to exist? If you think, for whatever reason, that somehow that the right to exist is simply going to be given to you, simply because that's your human right, think again. Uh, the capitalists don't recognize human rights. Uh, that, that's, that only exact, exists in the minds of people who have a, a concept in terms of what is right and what is wrong. For people who have no such concept, there is, there's never going to be any possibility of human rights. 
So that leaves African community and poor people particularly in a very precarious situation. Uh, one thing, you know, is very, very clear when we talk about kind of the systematic injustices that inflict, inflict the people, we can anticipate that those, in, those uh, injustices will uh, proliferate. They're not going to decrease. They're going to actually increase. And so if don't fool yourself in thinking that, you know, everything's going to be all right. It's not going to be all right. The bottom line is that this is history. We're caught up in the throes of history. And so, therefore, this, his, this, the horrible things that history have done to people, it's not unprecedented. It happened before, and it's going to happen in America. we got to wake up and understand uh, the, the, the nature of the challenge. Uh, having said that, Brother Africa has always encouraged people to unravel the matrix because without you know, a, a thorough understanding in terms of precisely what we're up against, there's no way feasible to strategize you know, to minimize any potential uh, uh, damage that's coming our way. So having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Good night to you, Brother Haki, and we also thank you as well for your contribution to today's program. And we now move to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that in order to to uh, to gain our liberation and defeat the enemies of uh, Africa and world humanity, we must join a political organization that is working for people's liberation. We must organize to achieve Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Uh, To learn more about us, you can contact us at 202-246-4896 or visit our website at www.aprp-gc.org. And we thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And to our listen, to our listen audience, we'd like to remind you that next week there will be no program next week uh, because of the... Next weekend, many people want to celebrate and want to participate. There has become a trend in our community of the so-called Super Bowl weekend. Um, But we will be back after the following week, and we want to remind you and like to thank you for your continued support on Africa on the Move, and we want to make you remember that without information you cannot think, and without organization you cannot think clearly. So I encourage you to join an organization that is helping to alleviate the suffering of your people and humanity. This is the only way and the best way you can make your contribution to your people and to humanity. Until next time, let's strive to go forward our backwards level. This has been Africa on the move, and we want our freedom.
Thank you. 